Welcome to Adventology, the podcast dedicated to helping you be ready for Jesus. Here now is the host of Adventology, Travis Walker. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Adventology. Everything we do on this podcast is designed to help you be ready for Jesus. And uh, I am super excited about today's episode because it really connects with where I am both in my personal walk and my professional life right now. Um, I have always had an interest in discipleship, and my doctor of ministry that I'm working on right now is on discipleship, and specifically on whole person discipleship and how mind, body, and spirit all connect together and that a lot of discipleship out there today is either focused primarily on the mind or primarily on the spirit, but not a lot on the health, the the mental, physical health aspect. And uh, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has always had this holistic point of view when it comes to uh, human nature, the nature of man, and uh, and that's why we've always had a health message. We've always connected um, all the aspects of human experience into one, not, not separating them. So we're not just about doctrine, we're not just about spiritual practices, but we are about whole life living and living life to its fullest and also recognizing that neglect in one area of our life is going to affect the others. So when we are not physically and emotionally well, um, we are also not going to be spiritually well. And that really kind of bypasses the uh, intellectual side of our experience because we can have a deep understanding of truth. We can recognize that there are things that we should do Um, and we can intellectually assent to those things, but many times uh, there's a disconnect between what we know and uh, the lifestyle that we live. And uh, it can be daunting at times when we think about the, the gap that exists between the two, and it's much more comfortable to focus on growing intellectually rather than growing emotionally and really uh, putting into practice um, those in, that intellectual knowledge in ways that uh, stretches us and challenges us. And, uh, and, and so these next several episodes, not just today, but uh, next week's as well, uh, are really going to be focused on mental health and how our mental health connects to our preparation for the second coming of Jesus. And so today I'm joined by Jennifer Jill Swerger. Uh, she is a very accomplished um, counselor, musician, artist, author. She is the founder of the Abide Network, and that's something that we really get into in this episode. But uh, ultimately, she is is just a voice out there that um, I think is is a great bridge to connect mental health and spirituality together. So um, I hope you enjoy this episode. I know I did. So without further ado, let's get right into the episode. Jennifer, it is so great to have you on the podcast today. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I am doing wonderful. It is a beautiful day to be in Florida. We just finished bike week here in Daytona Mm -hmm. Beach. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're kind of recovering from that. We Definitely had a lot of people out here, and mm-hmm. uh, it was it was great weather. It's good for mm. our community, kind of uh, having activities and things like that coming back to normal. But uh, you know, we're still here in this pandemic. And uh, how about you? How are, how are you doing? I'm doing great. This weather is the reason we live here. <laughs> this time of year, we're like, oh, we live in paradise. In yeah. a month or two, we'll be like, uh, no. But it's really nice this time of year, and I've also been outside a lot, just really been blessed. So I'm doing great. I couldn't be better, really, given the circumstances. Wonderful. Yeah, so yeah. so you're here in Orlando, and I'm in Daytona Beach. And mm. uh, so, so what are you up to this year? Like, do you have anything you're looking forward to in 2021? 
Well, the first item on my agenda is finishing a doctoral degree. Um, trying to get through the dissertation, which is a rather complex process. And I should be done by the middle of the year. I wanted to be done at the beginning of the year, but it's complex. So that's the first item on my agenda, but I also have a, a number of different writing projects. I have a number of dreams of producing media and specifically a YouTube channel and a podcast potentially, but I kind of want to get the doctoral first so I can use the doctor as a like sort of a branding identity thing, possibly, even though I know that people are going to like fault me for it because I'm not a medical doctor. And there's this whole debate about whether you can use doctor if you're not a medical doctor, but I kind of want to do that because I think it, it may help with the branding a little bit anyway. Um, so I'm kind of, and plus I don't want to try to finish a doctoral degree and start a bunch of new projects. So I'm trying to do things one at a time. It doesn't always work out that way. <laughs> I It's funny you said that because I started working on my doctor of ministry, mm-hmm. like, I don't know, a year before I started doing Adventology. And I will say that Adventology has been a huge blessing and it's brought a lot of fulfillment and joy to my life, but it has definitely made working on the doctorate more challenging. Yeah. yeah. So I've, uh, I'm the same as you. I'm trying to get back into my doctorate. I have my last intensive coming up here in April mm-hmm. and, uh, that, that will be, then I'll be mm-hmm. at the stage of, of writing and doing my projects. So, Hey, mm-hmm. I, I kind of feel that, uh, tension that, that you're describing. And, and so you're, you're, Obviously, um, a very well-published author, um, a musician. You have been uh, involved in, in ministry in so many different aspects of your life. Um, how did you get to where you are now? Like, kind of share a little bit about your journey into a professional mental health counselor. Oh, that's a big question, but I'll give you the nutshell version, the boil-down version. For many years, my public ministry was music. I have a background in uh, singing and music and songwriting and music production. And I've written scores of songs and, you know, communicated the gospel in music. Then got into writing books and writing blogs at the time called Articles. And then got into teaching seminars, weekend events, and this type of thing. So it's sort of one thing moved into another. And then right around the time my children were launching into adulthood, and I wasn't going to be needed at home as much, I wanted to go back to school for some kind of professional degree. And so I was torn between seminary because I'd been doing spiritual seminars for many years and getting a counseling degree. And I went to my husband and I said, how would you feel about being married to a pastor? And he said, "Uh uh-uh. And that made up my mind for me, being the obedient wife that I am. So I went to school for psychology, got a degree from Capella University in counseling and a couple of years later had a license and had been practicing private practice for about almost 15 years. So I had been approached by people since the time I could remember with their personal problems. You know, when you're in public ministry, you're kind of in a situation where you share things that are meaningful to people and it opens them up emotionally. And a lot of them feel like they know you. And so they'll come up and sort of dump their most well-kept secrets on you. And so I'd been dealing with that for years and thought maybe I should make a profession out of this. You know, I seem to be, have an aptitude for it. And it turned out to be true. I, I had already published a couple books by the time I got into counseling and, you know, people talk about starting a private practice and how you really have to market yourself. I never had to market myself. In fact, what I did was start giving some of the overflow of referrals to other people because I couldn't handle them all because I was published and because people knew who I was as a music ministry and as a speaking ministry. So the clients just came. And so I would hand them off to other people and actually built from that overflow abide network, which is abide.network. It's a panel basically of, or it's a network of biblically grounded counselors and coaches that through teletherapy reach people all over and serve people all over the world. We also do workshops, we do trainings, we do all kinds of stuff. Zoom 
in person, whatever, and have been for many years. So we built that out of this overflow of clients that I got. Wow. So yeah, that's, that's kind of the short version, the nutshell version of my counseling career. Yeah. So we're going to put that in the show notes, um, ways that people can connect to that abide network, right? Cause that's yeah. something that anybody who's listening today, if they feel like that's something they need, um, they would be able to connect to that right away. Yes. Yes, of course. Right. And if they're interested in counseling, they don't have to do they don't have to reach out to me. They don't have to reach the con- fill out the contact form. Just go to intake form, fill out the intake form. It'll come to us and we'll process it and place you with someone. I'm not currently taking new clients. I need to say that because people that hear me speak, typically they feel bonded to me and they want me to be their counselor. I get so many requests. It just becomes overwhelming, especially with all the other things going on in my life. So, But I have trained a number of people in this biblically grounded, Christ-centered, gospel-centered, you know, truth, present truth-friendly form of counseling that we do, and also very holistic and takes into account the effect of the body on the mind and so forth. So if people are interested in that unique brand of counseling, this is going to work for them, and I train people in it. So that's who we are. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I'm super excited about that resource right off the bat that we can share with, with our listeners. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so you, you're obviously in, um, the, the fire, so to speak, you, you have clients, you're out there speaking, you Mm -hmm. obviously have lived through this pandemic, just like all of us. Um, so what are some of the more significant effects the pandemic is having on our mental health, just generally, at least at first as a society that you have seen? Oh, everything's off the charts. And let me just say this. I'm not against masking. I'm not even against shutdowns. I I think people do desperate things in desperate circumstances. But I think that the way that we've handled it, even though there are benefits possibly to refraining from spreading the contagion, we have, it's been in somewhat of ignorance of how it would impact people psychologically. And I just wonder if there was some way we could quantify the deaths that would result from depression, suicidality, and so forth, which are all spiking since the COVID. Um, that if one, I wonder if we think differently about shutting things down. I don't know. I'm not saying I'm against, you know, precautions. I'm just saying that that is a consideration. And everything is spiking, which just really highlights the fact that people need each other. People need to be around each other. We've done a good job of connecting, at least in my world, through Zoom and social media and finding other ways. And I'm so thankful for the internet because how would we have gotten through this without it? But I, at the same time, recognize that being in the physical presence of others, physical touch, reading body language, eye contact, which isn't the same over a screen, are all brain-regulating activities, actually, Hmm. on a brain level. I mean, there's this whole thing in Silicon Valley where they're like uber disciplined people and they go on a dopamine fast. Dopamine is the neurotransmitter that mediates the pleasure response. And they, during their dopamine fast, they, of course, they don't eat and have sex and do the things that people typically get a lot of dopamine from. But they also refrain from talking face to face with people and looking in people's eyes because there's a du- dopamine burst that comes from lo- looking at people's eyes. So my thing is, I think we need that. You know, God set human life up so that we interface with one another and we can't be healthy in isolation. And there are so many levels on which that that is, you know, quantifiable if you understand neuroscience. You know, people people that are isolated emotionally and relationally, they um, they have often chronic limbic arousal. Limbic part of the brain is the emotional center of the brain and there's like this hyper arousal that occurs in some people that are socially isolated it's it's the two are correlated so there's so many ways in which the brain doesn't function well if we're not in relationship with one another and and strangely enough there's a whole body of research on how social media actually you know it's ostensibly a means of connection but it ends up being a source of disconnect and so it's really important how we use it you know, there's a good way to use it and a bad way to use it. So, 
Um, yeah, all of that factors into COVID because here we are, you know, reliant on these electronic means of communication. And depending on how we use them, they can get us through or they can make us worse. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you just you just laid out several different um, ideas or, 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 or topics that could be episodes all in themselves, you know, and I, I want to encourage you, you know, when that time comes, I mean, I can imagine that that your channel will, will be so useful um, because, you know, this is the, the nitty gritty, right? I mean, we can, we go to church and, and we get the, the spiritual food and we, we understand Bible truth, but um, you know, how we manage our day-to-day lives, that has such a greater impact on our lives than, uh, you mm-hmm. know, going to church once a week and, you know, some of the things that, you know, generally were disrupted because of the pandemic. And I'm, definitely can can say that it has affected me as a pastor, not being able to see uh, my congregants mm-hmm. and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, not mm-hmm. really being able to, to, um, like you said, look them in the eye, really put mm-hmm. my hand on them, pray for them in person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it, and it creates this, this disconnect that, that I've struggled with and I can definitely attest to, um, going through depression and, and burnout this year. And we'll probably get into that here in a little bit in the episode, but, but before we start digging down, I just want to ask you another question because, um, you know, sometimes Christians, particularly those who are focused on being ready for the second coming of Jesus. And that's what this podcast really does focus on. Um, but sometimes they get mental health wrong. They have a wrong perception of it. So why is that? Why do, why do we sometimes, you know, stigmatize mental health when we're focused on being ready for Jesus? Well, because we don't read the whole Bible. Um, So there are mental illnesses in the Bible. You know, uh, Jesus talked about people with uh, episodes of what we would call epilepsy. Uh, Their madness is is expressed in the Bible. You know, Nebuchadnezzar came down with a pretty serious case of some kind of delusional disorder. We don't know exactly what, but you know, it's there in the scripture. So the, the fact that um, some Christian sources have engaged in this reductionism where all the internal problems we have relate to demons and direct even direct demon possession is really a, coming from a place of biblical illiteracy, frankly. If people aren't looking at the whole Bible. So this is how I see it. Let me map this out for you. We are comprised of three components as human beings. Those components connect to one another. In fact, they don't live in isolation from one another. We are holistic by nature. So I believe in holism. But those three components have sort of different functions. And they are the body, which is the physical entity of the human being, the soul, which to me is the psychological. And in fact, the word soul in Greek is suke from which we get psychology or psyche Mm -hmm. and then the spirit, which is more, has more to do with the connection of the human being to God and the spiritual interactions that occur there. And specifically God gives us breath and life and we can't live apart from that. But also there's a relational connection that involves the whole being of the human being. But the spirit is what I would say, you know, directly connects and becomes a conduit for God and, or sometimes, you know, supernatural forces that aren't from God. So, just for the sake of understanding, I would say that human beings possess those three sort of components that always live in a holistic connection to one another. So if you really study the issue of, for instance, the nature of man from Scripture, you come to the conclusion, if you look at all that Scripture says, that human beings, uh, their soul does not live apart from their body. And if you look at history, you realize that that idea came into Christianity during what we call the Great Compromise which is the period of time where the leaders of the church, who were also leaders of state, decided that they wanted to make Christianity more appealing to heathen peoples. And so they began to compromise some of the pure teachings. So that was one of the compromises that were made, is the idea that um, human beings are holistic. They started incorporating the principles of Greek dualism into Christian teaching. And that's where the idea came from, that when you die, you're your soul goes back to God or goes to heaven or goes to hell or whatever. Um, 
actually the Bible teaches that we are one, we are holistic, and that the soul, although God does refer to the soul as a component of the human organism, if I can say it that way, it doesn't live separate from the body. You know, so everything is connected and God created us that way. So what I feel I'm doing as a mental health minister is I'm ministering to the soul part of human beings. And a doctor, a medical doctor, is ministering to the physical part of human beings. And a pastor or a spiritual leader is ministering to the spiritual aspect. Now, there's lots of overlap between them Uh because of this holism. But, you know, people have foci. You know, they have specific things that they focus on. So I, as a counselor, am focusing on the soul. So let's think just for a moment about what the coming of Jesus entails, because your question was, um, you know, what do most Christians and particularly those focus on being ready for the second advent of Christ often get wrong about mental health. So let's just, let's just take what is actually happening as we prepare for the second coming of Jesus. If you read the scriptures again, in a holistic way, you realize that God wants to transform us uh, and in particular, a certain generation to manifest his character to the world. And that is the primary means of witnessing. It isn't, it isn't apart from information, but we don't need only information to witness to the world. We need demonstration. Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples by your love for one another, not by all the doctrines. And I'm, I'm not saying those things are, are not, they're a, a both, not an either or. Right. So I believe there is an informational aspect, but, but God also wants to demonstrate his character. And that's an important part of preparing for the coming of Jesus. It says in first John, uh, first John chapter three, behold, what manner of love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. So when he appears, we'll be like him. We become more and more like him as we walk with him and we, we demonstrate his character to the world. So what does it mean to be like God in character? Well, there's this wonderful statement um, that I read that said, thoughts and feelings combined make up moral character. Mm. If you look at the whole concept of character development, the word character isn't used in scripture, but there is a one place that it's used, and that is in talking about the manifestation of God through Jesus in the first chapter of Hebrews, and it uses the word character in the Greek. And that literally means the engraving on the face of a coin. So what character is, is the demonstration of the nature of something through a person. Jesus demonstrated who God was in his person. We demonstrate who God is in our persons. And that is the essence of character development is showing, shining forth, like the engraving on the face of a coin, the character of God. And if, so if character is the inner life, then it's the same thing as the psyche, because the definition of suke in the Greek is the inner life of a human being. Those thoughts and feelings, those emotional and behavior um, and uh, cognitive transactions that really make up who we are as a person, you know, because who you are as a person is not just your behaviors. You can, you can phony your way through behaviors, but who you really are is who you are inside, which ends up being manifested in behaviors eventually. But that's who you really are as a person. And if you take the combination of those two things, that is the suke or the psyche and that is what I'm dealing with. Mm-hmm. So, so preparing for Jesus entails concrete changes in thought and emotional patterns and that spill out into behaviors. Wow. Preparing for Jesus is the work, preparing people for Jesus is the work of a counselor who helps people with their inner lives and helps them line up their inner lives with truth. Yeah. And this is this was helpful to me because I was so just I wanted to be an evangelist. Like I wanted to be an, like I wanted to be like a Mark Finley. I wanted to be like nice. A, you know, Sturge. I wanted to be like an evangelist. That's what I wanted to do because I love the Bible. I love the teachings of the Bible and I just want to be out there teaching them. But it didn't work out. And then I got into counseling and I thought, "Oh, I can't evangelize." But then I discovered this truth that I'm actually preparing people for Jesus coming, you know, by helping them change the way they think and feel. You know, it's so true. And I think it's interesting because 
you know, the, the way that, that we are converted, um, a lot of times it, it starts with, a, you know, we're converted to truth, we're converted, we're convinced, we're convicted of, of sin in our life, you know, especially for me, uh, you know, even though I kind of grew up in the church, uh, you know, loosely, I, I, I had, you know, developed patterns of thinking and feeling and just a general uh, character that was uh, obviously completely disconnected or there was no alignment between that and, and God. And, and so the first aspect of my conversion was, was involving just kind of learning, okay, what is truth? What is all these things that, that, uh, you know, I, I just kind of soaked it in and, and I became just enamored with the truth. And, and I kind of kept having these aha intellectual moments of just like, wow, and this and that, and my curiosity just, just grew and grew. And eventually, you know, it's like, man, I want to be a pastor and I love teaching it. And, uh, and it wasn't until I actually started pastoring that I really started to recognize the, um, you know, my emotional uh, handicap that, that I had this really strong sense of understanding truth. And, and, and I was mm-hmm. kind of in denial or, or just generally ignorant of, of my emotional self. And, uh, and it was really kind of, um, I would say, undoing the good that I was doing uh, outwardly. I was kind of falling apart inwardly. And, um, and, and so I, I think that's not something that's completely uncommon to myself. No, not at all. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, welcome <laughs> to our world. This is, this is so, like, yeah. your testimony is so many people's. There are so many people. Like, here's the thing. It's like, I, there are times when I'm working with people that aren't even professed believers, and I feel like they're doing more of the work than the super crazy, dysfunctional, self-centered people that I'm counseling that are like in public ministry kind of out there, you know? Mm-hmm. So who are we to judge just because based on someone's profession, where they stand with God and where they are at in this process of development? So true. Because here's the thing is that right at the end there, Jesus is going to say, I never knew you to people that were, I did works in your name, you know? So I am less impressed by profession than I've ever been because I see who people are under the surface. And if they're making a big fat profession and then this goes for me too, and aren't doing this work of preparing the heart for the coming of Jesus, they're in a more unenviable place than someone who is not even professing him Mm. that is actually facing their issues. Yeah. And, (laughs) and I know I totally agree. I a hundred percent agree. And, and I think that's part of the scary thing. I think those who have advanced um, in knowledge or in, in Mm -hmm. professions, especially, Mm -hmm. but just generally anyone who's a quote unquote advanced in, in their walk um, intellectually with God um, that it tends to be a little bit of a hiding spot to kind of boast in that and, and kind of maybe ignore or just not think too much about the emotional disconnect. And mm-hmm. uh, so how does that happen? Like where, where do the, mm-hmm. how do we get, how do we become self-aware? Um, you know, at what point do you see that, you know, cause I come across people all the time trying to disciple them and it's just so obvious how they they just are not aware of their inner life and how that's um, sabotaging mm-hmm. their 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 walk and 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 so just just share a little bit about self awareness if you can. Yeah. So the question you're asking, if I'm not mistaken, is that how do people get to the place where they're so um, outwardly righteous but inwardly in denial of how bad they're off. Exactly. Basically, you're basically you're discovering the Laodicean condition that Jesus describes in the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation. Um, well, not no, not Laodicea. It's the churches are second and third chapter. Laodicea is the very end. Right. And it's interesting because Jesus says something nice to almost all of the churches in the seven letters, but he doesn't say anything nice to Laodicea. And he says to them, "You're rich." and increased with you think you're rich and increased with goods but actually you're poor wretched pitiable blind and naked 
Mm-hmm. And then he counsels them, buy me gold tried in the fire. I, w- I would say it this way. I would say that if we don't preach justification by faith, and this, and what that is, is the hum- the invitation from God to rest in his unmerited righteousness and in his unmerited love. There's, I think, two aspects of it is the, you know, the relational aspect and the personal aspect. So we are all sinners. We need a source of righteousness. And God invites us to rest in his righteousness. We are all alienated. We need a sense of a source of love. God invites us to rest first and foremost in his love. And then to live that love in the human context and to live that righteousness in the human context. So I think that if we don't have that experience, if we don't preach it effectively, and if we don't inculcate it effectively, and if, if in spite of preach good preaching, we don't internalize that message, mm-hmm. then we will have to resort to a human source of righteousness and a human source of merit, which is self-righteousness, which there, there is no way that we can truly convince ourselves that we are righteous. So we're just like Adam and Eve there in the garden with the bikini and the speedo convincing themselves that they're not naked when they were, but it didn't work very well because as soon as God walked into the garden, they dove behind a bush terrified of him. They didn't really think they were righteous. It didn't last. It didn't work. It wasn't sustainable, but they still tried it because apart from Christ's righteousness, that's what we resort to. And so to me, the thing that you have to do before people will stop being phony Christians and, and in this deep denial that leads them into this full-blown hypocrisy we see described in Revelation thir- uh, 3, mm-hmm. what we have to do is we have to offer them the ability to experience righteousness from Jesus. Because if they don't, they will resort to self-righteousness and all of its ancillaries will come quickly in its train denial, blame, resentment, you know, all of that stuff. So that is the cure. That is the way that people can not be hypocrites. And that's why Jesus said, buy gold tried in the fire and white raiment and his faith that works by love and his, his unmerited righteousness is what he told us to, that we needed. Yeah, I love that. I love that connection to to gold as as kind of the character of the righteous. You know, the 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 changing of our heart um, to be like God's. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, at least for myself, I I recognized um, after I you know started some therapy just to deal with my own disconnection and and going back and in my own childhood and, and just seeing, you know, how I struggled to intimately connect, um, with my, my own parents growing up and then how that really affected, you know, my ability to intimately connect with God. You know, I had this, you know, intellectual, uh, you know, very strong attachment. Um, but, uh, just the emotional side of my upbringing was was uh, was definitely stunted. I don't think mm. I don't blame my parents necessarily. I think that's kind of how they were raised, and uh, you know it just is what it is. But I know that as I have grown, um, I've I've really started to recognize that 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 is a huge um, area in my life that I have to work on. And I I was told that I actually can think my feelings. And I thought that was really strange when I heard that. And I was like, huh, you can actually intellectualize emotion and try mm-hmm. to respond with your head, something that um, you're not doing with your heart. And uh, I'm just curious if that's something that you've come across and, and uh, what, what can somebody do who, who is uh is struggling to to actually experience, um, you know, the the love that you know God wants for us. It's not just you know understanding love, but He really wants us to feel it and to mm-hmm. uh, exhibit it. Right? It needs it. He wants it to be a part of us, not just in our head, but like mm-hmm. you just said, it it kind of goes to all of us. 
So I appreciate that. Like, I think what you're asking is, what do you do if you are basically emotionally repressed mm-hmm. and, and you know the truth, but you don't have the emotional capacity to experience the truth on an emotional level? Uh, and I, I love that question. I have a book, 13 Weeks to Joy, that has a chapter called Dealings with Feelings, where I kind of make the point that if feelings aren't the enemy, you know, mm-hmm. I do believe that we can't, you know, they aren't a, necessarily a source of precise factual data. And we have to be careful about being led by our feelings. That's a whole different problem. But there's kind of two ditches. One ditch is emotionalism, where you're basically driven by your emotions without, you know, uh, fact checking them. And that can really get you into trouble in a lot of mental health areas. But the other kind of ditch is completely denying and repressing emotions. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what you're describing you were dealing with. Definitely. Is that right? Yeah. So how to open that up, how to be able to experience emotion in a way that isn't horrifying to us because there's, they're intense, you know, and if people weren't taught as children to process emotions effectively, it's especially daunting if you're grown up in an emotionally repressed in one way or another home. It's especially daunting. And I'll tell you what happens on a neurological level is the child's brain is not sufficiently developed for them to be able to process overwhelming emotion. And this is why God designed the family to be kind of a safe haven for children while they grow up, while their brain develops. And you can handle more difficult things as an adult because your brain is literally grown enough to be able to process it. What happens to children that are faced with overwhelming, difficult material that isn't in God's original plan that children be subject to is because their brains can't process it, they end up suppressing or denying or even dissociating from emotion because it's too much for them to handle. And so one of the things that has to happen in adulthood is for that person to now face that emotion. So they have to acquire tools that will enable them to be able to face what they were not able to face. But the good news is that now that your brain has grown up, yeah, you have the basic physiologic components you need to be able to handle those emotions and you'll do a fine job of it. And I, I really emphasize when I talk about human development that it's never too late. Like people can change. Even if you had a horrible home, horrible upbringing, you can still learn to love and be loved. And that is not just me being Pollyanna. That is me understanding neuroscience and understanding human psychology. So in terms of what you, um, you know, the things that help people face their emotions, um, it was that part of your question, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just helping people. Cause I, I don't think I'm alone in that. I've, I've come across that a lot of, uh, emotionally unaware, uh, you know, un- people in in the church and uh yeah and and those are the ones who end up driving the true seekers away sometimes uh and 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 gives the the bad experience to somebody who's maybe listening and they they've gone to church and they felt judged they felt like they were um you know not accepted as as who they were and 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 they just didn't they felt more comfortable being at home or being around other people who weren't religious because of Mm -hmm. these unsafe individuals that uh, mm-hmm. sometimes um, take yeah. up positions of authority in the church. A lot of times they do because they're so active and they work so hard and then they toxify the church. Uh, so that's, <clears throat> wow, that's big. So those people probably have a suppressed trauma of their own. I'm not saying they all do, but very, very possibly they grew up in the same kind of environment. And the only, maybe they were abused, spiritually abused even. And the only way they can get on top of it is to kind of be the king of the mountain, if Mm -hmm. you know what I mean. I mean, that's a human way of dealing with oppression is to then become the oppressor so that you can never be oppressed again. Um, So that would be my just somewhat educated guess. Um, But one of the things that I've stumbled upon in terms of, emotionally experiencing the truth as it is in Jesus mm-hmm. is the the connection of the cerebral cortex with the limbic system of the brain. 
that for some reason, human beings, there's often a disconnect between those two things. But there's actually an organ or a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex that syncs up the limbic with the cerebral cortex. <laughs> now, what I've done as part of my Abide network is I've developed a series of meditations called Jesus meditations that utilize breathing as an exercise to get people to calm themselves down before they listen to the devotional that I share and the scripture song that a friend of mine sings that are on these audio files. And what we've been finding is that that breathing enables people to emotionally experience what they're hearing, the scriptures they're hearing. Um, music also does that. It opens people up emotionally. Um, and it's, so it's a combination of the music and the breathing that seems to really open up the avenue between the cerebral cortex and the limbic system. And sometimes um, I think this is why people that are stuck in their heads, so to speak, are really afraid of music and they have these very strict ideas of what music can be, mm. uh, particularly spiritual music, because they, they're afraid of their emotions, basically. Um, but, but there are ways of connecting and the ways of living, again, more holistically, where our emotional life and our intellectual life are not two separate worlds. They are connected. Right. And, and, and what you're pointing out, I think, is that the result of living in a disconnected state is that people end up being very insensitive, not only to their own emotions, but to other people's emotions, right? Yeah, definitely. I think the more <laughs> unaware people are, um, then there's, uh, or the more denial, then, then I think there's, there's the tendency, like you said, to blame and judge at a higher level. Um, proportionate to to the denial and 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 on examination if that's a word of uh, your your, of their own life and and for me I guess I I feel like I can I can connect with people to the level that I have done personal work in my own life and then there are sometimes I reach a point where I'm like I don't have what it takes to help this person because I'm I recognize in myself just a lack of capacity to, to handle it. And so I have to, and I'm not saying, I'm sure boundaries are important anyway. And, uh, and that's probably a healthy thing to have boundaries to some degree, but I can, can think about, you know, to some level emotionally supporting someone, I reach a point where I'm like, I, I can't help this person anymore because I'm, I've, I've gone beyond my own ability. I haven't even gone here in my own life. I need to grow <laughs> here. So so, and then I end up, you know, faking it or just trying to cut it short, you know, and, and it's just not, again, I'm doing the best I can and, and I've done a lot of work and I, so I, you know, I, I feel like I've, I've made improvements, um, just in my own, you know, self-understanding and, and recognizing the different layers that I've put up to protect and to cover up some of the deep wounds that I have, um, but as I've, uh, you know, gone mm-hmm. back and, and allowed myself to feel, um, you know, I, I feel like I've, I've improved, but I also recognize that, um, you know, there's, there's still, um, you know, a, a lot to go in that area. And, and, uh, and so I'm, I, I just, I have a lot of compassion for, for others, but I also recognize that that, uh, you know, I have my limits and, uh, you know, I'm on a journey. One of the things that's happened with Abide Network, which I started for, like I mentioned, to give the overflow of clients that I was getting to other counselors and create, you know, a training and sort of a network of the type of counselors that we offer, the counseling and coaching that we offer. Um, but what has happened is, it's gone beyond that and it's become a community. <clears throat> and what I've learned is that the community of believers in the Abide Network is doing for people what individual counselors and coaches sometimes cannot do. And I'll, I'll be specific. I had a client who I wasn't able to help her with the depression. She came to one of my trainings and she got involved in the Abide Network and actually started doing some volunteer work, leading out in a group, and she improved. Mm. So <laughs> there's a phenomenon, a Holy Spirit-led phenomena taking place. And I'll tell you what I think the main 
reason that there's that, that abide has a bit of an edge here is that we create contexts in which it's okay to talk about the inner life. We create contexts in which it's okay to talk about our feelings, our internal experiences. What I find is that when you and you have to create a safe context to do that, where there have to be time limits, it has to be organized and orderly, or it can take over your life. You know, you can become consumed. And some people's problems are so severe that you can literally be eaten alive by them and mm-hmm. you get what's called compassion fatigue and you right. run the other way when you see them coming. You know, mm-hmm. we, So we try to create a context in which people can process things in a community, but there's organization and structure to it. So that's one aspect of it that has been very effective is that organization and structure so the overwhelming material doesn't become overwhelming. But in addition, um, we give permission to people to talk about what's going on inside them. So I just finished out last night a six-session anxiety and depression workshop, and I really emphasize in the workshop that people connect to one another. And the first time I gave the workshop, people connected so well to one another, they started their own support group out of it. Wow. So there's this multiplication thing that's happening. And I really think at the core, it's because we're, tr- we're trying to create a context in which it's safe to admit what's going on in your inner life. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a discussion about church and whether church should be that way or not. So you can attend church week after week, month after month, year after year, and never know people. I've done it. Never really know people. but. I can bring about a level of knowingness in one workshop in six sessions where people feel like they know each other. I mean, I had a lady that I was working with in a city that I lived in before. She was coming to me for counseling. And then I had some friends in Canada who um, were really good, um, you know, Adventist friends of mine. And she ended up calling them, you know, so we went across denominations um, because they were both part of this workshop mm-hmm. and people are getting to know each other on a very meaningful level and connecting with one another on a meaningful level because we create these contexts where it sort of organically happens. So I'm not saying that that shouldn't, that should be how church is only we need to worship God too. And sometimes look you know, forward and not at each other and not be talking to each other about each other, but looking up to God together. And that's part of church. But I think also it's very important for this mental health, relational health, small group thing to be part of church in order for church to be a healthy place. And I believe that the unique contribution God is calling me to make is to help the church be more of a helper culture and less of a divisive, um, you know, I don't know, toxic culture, (laughs) because it can go in very toxic directions if you don't have that help. Our first impulse should be empathy. It's not the only thing we need, but our first effort should be to empathize with and try to help one another. And then we move from there. Um, Empathy first. So if we created that empathy first helper culture in church, it would be a great blessing. But so often the first thing we think of is how to indoctrinate someone. Um, how to baptize someone, which I believe in indoctrination and baptism. I believe in church membership. I believe in church organization. But I think that that sometimes those things can push out this helper phenomena that I'm talking about and actually work against ultimately retaining membership and, you know, having healthy churches and creating inflow. You know, part of creating inflow is creating a center of gravity where people are drawn to something. And when people see love, they are drawn. When they see fellowship, they're drawn. They don't have to go to church to see division. You can just see it in the world. It's everywhere. But when you see unity, that's a unique offering that we have. And I think that this mental health and helper culture that I'm trying to cultivate in the church um, is part of that. Yeah, and it's it's so needed um, because, you know, if we're ever, and I should say when, because I do believe it will happen, um, when the church um, fulfills, you know, Jesus' prayer of John 17, that we become one with each other, just as he's one with the Father, that, that he's praying for oneness between us. And then, like you've already quoted, the, the new commandment that, that the whole world will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Um, you know, the community 
aspect of the attraction isn't the sermon, it isn't the preacher, it isn't the music. The, the attraction is the fellowship. The attraction mm-hmm. is I when I come here, I feel like I can be myself. I can share what's going mm-hmm. on inside me. I'm not going to be judged. I'm not going to be shamed. Um, I'm going to be encouraged. I'm not going to be, um, you know, enabled. I'm not going to just uh, be told, oh, it's okay. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I'm, it, it, I think that's that's the challenge. It's like we, we can't be just like everything goes um, and, because we believe mm-hmm. in the Bible. We believe that there's truth. We believe there's something called sin that separates us from God mm-hmm. and from each other. And that, and that sin can only be um, remedied through the gospel, through the blood of Jesus. And there, and repentance is required for full healing. I, I would, I know, and I know you believe that for, mm-hmm. for mental, physical, spiritual healing, repentance is a part of that. But in that mm-hmm. process, um, you know, we don't need to be manipulating the spirit or manipulating people into, into that prematurely or, or trying to falsify it by, you know, mm-hmm. per, you know, like outwardly, you know, quote unquote, repenting while inwardly, we're still, um, you know, the same as we were before. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and of course, we know, that uh, just eats us alive. And, uh, and, I'm sh- right. and, and I'm sure that's part of what depression, it kind of can, mm-hmm. is, is that rooted in sometimes not being able to live up to our own expectations? It's like, um, hatred pointed toward ourselves is that kind of rooted in and maybe just feeling like we're disappointing ourselves and and we don't live up to it and and maybe we're we're carrying these false maybe not false expectations but um we're we're just looking at them from the wrong lens yeah well god promises to pour out um the spirit of grace and supplication on his church and they will look upon me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. We're told, I believe that's Zechariah. Um, you know, as we contemplate the great grand truths of scripture, the center of which is the cross of Christ and all that he did for us, and especially in offering up his life and pouring it out there on the cross, that leads us to repentance. And repentance is the most healing, psychologically freeing of experiences because it pivots us out of our own self-righteousness, which is our default state as human beings, into resting in the unmerited righteousness and love of Jesus. That's what repentance does. It pivots us. It pivots our lives. And we don't need it just once. We need it every day. But that is how repentance takes place. We see the goodness of God manifest in the sacrificial love of Jesus on the cross. And we collectively together come to the foot of the cross But then I think God leaves some of the work of healing to the human realm where because he wants us to have that divine connection, that vertical connection. So if you think of it this way, the cross has two beings. One goes up, the other goes out. And so God wants us to connect to him up and him to flow into our lives from above, but also we flow out horizontally. So I wouldn't put it past God to then leave part of the work of healing to the way that humans relate to one another. And that's where this helper culture comes in. I remember the moment that God gave me the vision for this. I had been asked by someone in in actually um, uh, England to present a workshop on basically what I do as a counselor. So I developed this workshop called the Abide Helper Training. And I was doing the training and it was very interesting. There was somebody in the area that was preaching against psychology and all the evils of psychology in another church. And then I was preaching, you know, there's a biblical psychology and it's okay. And we need it, you know, don't be so afraid of psychology that you don't do the right kind, you know? So it's a very interesting uh, sort of chapter in my life. And I split the congregation, all the people that were there at this training into pairs and told them to coach one another and just help one another using some of the tools that I'd given them. And I looked out over that congregation of people helping one another. And I was completely, just, it came to me like an epiphany. This is what we need. Mm. We need to sit and help one another. If that was the first thing we did, 
instead of checking, you know, the doctrinal check boxes and making sure that everybody's on the right, because right now, like people are so opinionated, for instance, on how we respond to COVID, mm-hmm. like it's become a spiritual issue. So churches are dividing over vaccines and over masking and things like this. But if the first thing we did was sit down and try to find out how can I help this person? How can I minister to their inner life? You know, how can we connect on that level? Then masking would really be a secondary issue, which it is. And and these things would be um, would be put in their proper, the issues that divide us would be put in their proper perspective. So to me, this helper culture is a way of putting first things first. You know, when someone comes to church and their heart is broken because they don't really have a friend on earth and they've just recently faced that fact that they are completely lonely and disconnected and were raised in a disconnected family and don't even connect to their family of origin and haven't been able to make friends and they're facing the reality that they're alone and they've been escaping into media or drugs or whatever and they're coming to church the first time with a fresh revelation that maybe I am completely alone and no one really loves me. Travis, they don't need to be asked what their position is on the COVID vaccine. Like that is not what they need. They need to see the love of Jesus manifested through human relationships. Mm -hmm. And they need to learn that that's actually possible. And that, that they can learn to love and be loved, not just by God, although that's infinitely important, but in the human realm as well. That that actually can happen. People can actually love one another. I have friends that are like not getting the vaccine or they're against the, the masking or whatever. We're still friends. Mm-hmm. I'm not on that page, but we're still friends. People can transcend these things if the first things are first. And so that's part of what I think the Lord has given me in this vision of a helper culture where the first question I ask when I see someone walk through the, the, the door is, you know, do they have a friend? Do they feel connected? Do they have, are they experiencing depression? And it would be so cool if, you know, a by network could get so big that every pastor had the ability to say, hey, when it becomes, you know, too deep, you know, their problems are too severe for me to handle in my pastoral counseling role, which is limited and shouldn't go to the depths that a professional goes to, then you have somewhere to refer them, you know, that there are counselors and coaches and providers all over that can give that service to the people that would, you know, be too much for a pastor to handle. That's my dream, is that that it grows and it, it, it becomes a mental health phenomena within the church that meets the mental health needs in the church. Amen. But also in a very practical, you know, way in a local church setting, you know, just psychoeducation is so powerful when people just learn. I remember being in a Neil Medley um, seminar and, or reading his book and just realizing, and Dr. Nedley has done a lot of teaching on um, overcoming depression and anxiety. And so I was reading his book and for the first time I saw depression presented as a problem to solve rather than a moral spiritual failure or a permanent flaw in your character. I'd always thought of it that way, so I never admitted how depressed I was, but I saw it as like, this is a problem and it can be solved, it can be managed. And it was like a turning point for me. That's the power of psychoeducation. So if we brought in more of that, we would be able to, I think, just by giving people correct ideas of mental health and a correct understanding of mental health in the context of our message and the truths of the gospel, Um, we would be able to alleviate a lot of suffering right there just through psychoeducation. But then we could also train people to minister directly. And it could be powerful. And that's the vision I have for Abide Network and for my church. All right. Well, thank you for tuning in to another episode of Adventology. I want to encourage you, if you've been blessed by this episode, to share it, to rate, to review it. Uh, You can subscribe to Adventology wherever you downloaded this episode from. It's free and it allows uh, the episodes to be downloaded onto your phone right as they are published. And uh, if you don't mind, we'd love it if you could go over to Apple and rate us and review us there. That helps other people find us as they're looking for positive podcasts in their own life. And uh, especially if you want to connect with Jennifer, I want to encourage you to check out her website, jenniferjill.org. 
or her counseling website, which is abidecounseling.us. I know I was blessed today, and I'm sure you were as well. So if you are in need of mental health counseling, I want to encourage you to check that out. I know it is something that I need in my life, and I know that many of you uh, would be blessed by it as well. All right, well, that's it for today. I look forward to seeing you back here next week for another episode of Adventology. But until then, Maranatha. Maranatha.